Rumpelstiltskin always says that magic comes with a price. But for this price, you can get a nice piece of jewelry. Use code ONCEPOD for 10% off your first order at Unusual Magic Jewelry on Etsy. Click the link in the description. Welcome to the Once Again Podcast. We are your hosts, Ashley and Jason. In today's episode, we will be discussing the novel A Game of Thrones from Chapter 18, Catelyn 4, to Chapter 22, Arya 2. These are the corresponding book chapters to the Episode 3 of Game of Thrones, Lord Snow. We will attempt to keep spoilers to a minimum in this episode. However, Jason and I have already read all five published books in the Song of Ice and Fire series, so it is possible we may discuss some spoilers in covering this material. All right, so let's dive in. We start off with chapter 18, Catelyn 4. Our POV character is Catelyn Tully, and the location is King's Landing aboard the Storm Dancer in Blackwater Bay. As their ship, the Storm Dancer, prepares to dock in King's Landing, Catelyn is joined on deck by Sir Roderick Cassell. Catelyn notes that Roderick looks much better than he has for days. Roderick has been chronically seasick throughout the voyage, forcing him to shave his befouled cheek whiskers. After Captain Moro Timidus leaves them, Catelyn and Roderick discuss how to go about their investigation of the dagger. Catelyn suggests speaking to the Red Keep's master-at-arms, Sir Aaron Sadagar, who may recognize the weapon. Roderick reminds Catelyn that they must be very careful that she is not recognized. This brings Lord Peter Baelish, the king's master of coin, to Catelyn's mind. Baelish, still known by the nickname Littlefinger, given to him by her her brother Edmure, was raised with her at Riverrun as her father, Hoster's ward. They had been close until Peter had challenged Catelyn's betrothed, Brandon Stark, for her hand. Brandon had only spared Peter because Catelyn had pleaded for his life. After his recovery, Peter had been sent away, and Catelyn had not seen him since. Roderick proposes that he go to the Red Keep alone, because without his whiskers, he is unrecognizable, even to the few who might know him. As they disembark, Catelyn and Sir Roderick move into a modest old inn suggested by the ship's captain. After Roderick leaves, Catelyn tries to get some sleep, but is woken by the city watch of King's Landing. They show her a seal depicting a mockingbird in gray wax, the sigil of Peter Baelish, as she prepares to accompany the soldiers who do not recognize her. Catelyn wonders how Peter knew she was in King's Landing and settles on the Storm Dancer's captain as the culprit. Catelyn is escorted to a tower room occupied by Peter, where Catelyn asks him how he knew she was in the city. Peter replies that Varys knows everything that happens in the city. He does admit, however, that Varys does not know the reason for Catelyn's visit. Catelyn lies that she, is, she merely yearned to see her husband and daughters. Peter does not believe this for a moment and asks Catelyn to let him help. Yeah, if, I wouldn't believe it either. I'm not quite sure why yeah. she thought, like, I just yearned to see my husband and daughters. It really hasn't been that long. <laughs> like, yeah. It's been two weeks or whatever, three weeks, maybe like a in month. In terms of like how yeah. long some of these characters go without seeing each other, like, please. <laughs> yeah. Before Catelyn can answer, they are joined by Varys. After profuse courtesies, Varys asks to see the dagger. Catelyn is astonished by Varys's knowledge of things no one could possibly know and produces the dagger for inspection. Upon examination... Peter realizes it once belonged to him until he lost it, betting on Sir Jamie Lannister and the tourney on Prince Joffrey's name day. Peter explains that when Jamie was unhorsed by Sir Loras Tyrell, Peter's dagger was won by Tyrion Lannister. Now this is, oh, go ahead. This, this is one of those chapters where like, she clearly is like, yeah, I haven't seen Peter in so long. Like, since he fought my betrothed, Brandon Stark, like, that was so many years ago. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah, I could probably trust him when, like, talking to Sir Roderick about it. Like, what do you mean you can probably, you don't know him. Right. It's been, like, 
how old how old are the boys like oh like uh rob yeah 14 about to be 15 so like let's say it's been like 16 17 years right right yeah so he could peter could be a totally different person than the person that she yeah that's like like when i'm thinking that i'm like i'm gonna be 31 soon and like 16 17 is like half my age i am not the same person i was at like six like 16 17 years ago i was a child like this is the same kind of thing like Mm. when this was going on they were mere teenagers basically well luckily for book readers like us characters like peter baelish and severus snape never really grow up from when they're teenagers they fall in love with one girl and that's it for the rest of their lives it's just that one girl nothing else matters nothing can hold a candle to catelyn stark ever Mm -hmm. until he sees catelyn's daughter who's even prettier than catelyn was and then he's like oh hello (laughs) that's literally what he does he sees her stands in front of her stares at her and he's like oh hello you're catelyn's daughter <laughs> but we'll get we'll get to that in a little... awkwardly touches her hair or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah but this this chapter has some similarities to what happens in the show but is also different we never get the storm dancer the ship in the in the show i actually kind of like the way that it's done in the show where catelyn's like oh no one's gonna know who i am and then literally and like immediately yeah, the next line is someone being like lady stark and she's like oh okay all right um but everything else is kind of similar. Varys, Peter asking her I about the dagger. I think this is just a more drawn out version mm-hmm. of what we get in the show, because mm-hmm. I think this would have taken way longer to show if they wanted to show it in the show. And why do that? And there's a little caveat, or not a caveat, but a little bit of background after Peter and Brandon dueled. And Peter essentially is nearly dying because Brandon does cut him from his stomach up to his chin, I believe. And he's recuperating at uh, River Run. Uh, that spoilers is the time period where Peter and uh, Liza, uh, Liza hook up together. So, and I believe he was under Milk of the Poppy and thought that it was Catelyn, and even to this day still believes that it was Catelyn that he hooks up with, but it was actually Liza. And then he gets sent away from River Run for reasons we'll discuss in later books. Um, Catelyn just assumes it's because he fought Brandon, but it's something else. So let's move on to chapter 19, John 3. Our POV character is Jon Snow, and the location is Castle Black. Jon is training with the other recruits under Castle Black's master-at-arms, Sir Alistair Thorne. Jon is by far the most skilled swordsman, and during a sparring match, he accidentally injures Gren. Disgusted with the recruits, Thorne calls an end to the training for the day. Jon knows that Thorne dislikes him, but that he dislikes the other boys more. Thorne mercilessly berates them all and has given John the moniker of Lord Snow in mockery of John's bastard status. To John's annoyance, everyone has taken up using the name. I mean, I would be annoyed too, you know. He wanted to get away from being the bastard, basically, which is all he was really at Winterfell. And now here it's, once again, he's the bastard child. Yeah. And Alistair Thorne is pretty much a jerk in the early books. Kind of yep. comes around a little bit later on, but he's he's uh, he's a jerk here. He's a jerk in the show for certain, but he uh, he kind of comes around a little bit in the later books. John has found Castle Black cold and the people colder. He has no friends among twenty recruits, and finds that he despises them more as time goes by. John resents that nobody but Tyrion Lannister told him that the wall would be like this. The fact that even his father never told him makes it hurt all the worse. Even John's uncle Benjen seems to have abandoned him, becoming a very different man who spends all of his time among the high officers. Three days after arriving at the wall, John had pleaded to be allowed to come on arranging with his uncle. Benjen had told him that he was just a boy who had to earn the right to go. Benjen also explained that while he loved his family, the men of the Night's Watch are his true brothers. The next morning, Benjen had smiles, but not for John, telling him that they would speak when he returned. Everyone says that to John. <laughs> like, you know, we'll talk when I get back, and I'm sure nothing bad. Also, gonna... like, 
It's really annoying that none of them were like upfront with John about this at any point. Like none of them really, really sat down to be like, no, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Like well, Benjamin was like, oh, the wall is hard. Like, you know, he said things would be different, but he didn't explain like, I'm not going to be able to give you special treatment. I'm not going to do this. Yeah. I kind of feel like all the Stark children were misled on what the world's really like. Like if you think about, granted, they're all young still. Like they're and yeah. they're much they're much younger than their show counterparts, so it's we have to keep that in mind. But when um in a previous Catelyn chapter, like Rob and Theon were both like, "Oh, is it going to go to war? We're ready to fight! Like I'll call the banners and we'll go fight the the Lannisters." Like they think like they're going to be these big her- heroes. They don't think about what war is actually like and what it could mean. And you yeah, know, until way later in this book, and it's like, oh, right. And and Sansa, she uh. She's very clearly like just a little princess that was raised on stories of nobles and how great they are and everything. Like it, it seems like all the Stark children weren't prepared for the world as it really is. Like you can make an argument about uh, Catelyn and um, Ned being bad parents in that regard, especially to like John and Rob, who are the oldest. Well, obviously Catelyn's especially- a bad. Like I get there, like, especially because they're so like divorced from the rest of their world because they are in the north where right. no one really goes. Like they don't go to court, they don't go see other things. Like none of these kids have been outside, mm-hmm. like of the Winterfell, like Greater Winterfell area. I assume so. Like maybe that's why we do get the argument about um, Bran being too young to go see the execution. Like maybe I don't know. Like. Actually, do we get that in the books? I'm trying to remember now. No, I think, I think we don't get that argument in the books, but like, I think we get like a passing mention, like Catelyn thought it was too, too yeah. soon for Bran to be going. Like, Yeah, but like none of these kids are prepared for the world as it is. And you would especially think John and Rob should be the most, like they're the oldest. Rob's the heir to Winterfell. Like he has, like, if his father just dropped dead of a heart attack one day, he would be the Lord of Winterfell. Yes. And he has, like, no understanding of what this world is really like. Eh. And, like, also, like I said, they don't know what's outside. Like, usually, like, you know, we talk about some of the other characters taking wards. Why were none of these kids already, like, sent as wards elsewhere? Like, right. why haven't they been sent to the Erie before or River Run to, like, go with their uncle or, like, go with their grandfather? Like, yeah. You would think these had, like, that they would have seen other things. Why weren't any of the kids already, like, wards at King's Landing? Like, if Robert is basically a brother to Ned, why are, why is none of the kids down there already? Like, And if you don't even want to send them that far, send them, send one or two of them to the Karstarks. Like, they're your extended family, and they're not too far from Winterfell. Like, I don't know. My point being is they haven't seen literally any of the world, and, like, they have... Again, they have River Run, which is family. They have the Erie, which is family. Like they have plenty of other places to go that are much further south than Winterfell mm-hmm. and much more in the like heat of the action, as it were. Agreed. Well, say la vie. But going back into the plot, John goes to his sleeping cell to be with Ghost, thinking about how much he misses his family. His thoughts are interrupted by the arrival of Gren, Toad, and two other recruits. All of them are brutes and bullies sent to the wall for crimes. After Grin insults John's mother, a short fight breaks out that soon has John on the ground. However, before the boys can hurt John, Doyle Noy, the smith, intervenes. After the others leave, Noy tells John that the Night's Watch has the need of every man and that, that there is no honor in killing boys like Grin. When John insists that they insulted his mother, Noi points out that them saying it doesn't make it true. When Noi reminds John that he is in the Night's Watch for life, John reflects angrily on the fact that Doyle Noi had had a life before taking the Black. He feasted and wenched and fought in battles, only taking the Black after losing an arm during the Siege of Pike. Okay, but what's annoying about John being annoyed by this fact is we know because John says in later chapters that he hasn't really taken the black yet. <laughs> like mm-hmm. he has not taken the vows. He can leave. Right. So him being like, oh, I haven't gotten to experience anything, like 
you can go to Molestown and do whatever you want right now, bro. Like, yeah. go ahead and leave. True. Like, like, John could theoretically do whatever John wants here. And I'm sure if he was to even go back to Winterfell at this time, it's not like Rob is going to be like, oh, no, get out of here. Like, Rob's going to be like, hey, welcome back, bro. Like, like, you know, and Catelyn's not there to bully him at the moment. So I don't know. John's just being his usual emo self. John claims that the others hate him because he is better than, than them. But Noi insists that they hate him because he thinks he is better. Noi then calls John a bastard and a bully. Being called a bully surprises John because his, att- his attackers were all older and bigger than him. Noi explains that John has humiliated them and shamed the other recruits who had no formal training in swordsmanship, whereas John was trained by an anointed knight. John starts to feel ashamed, but is still angry. Noi tells him to accept his life on the wall and reconsider how he treats his companions, or else to sleep with a dagger by his bed. As he leaves, John looks up at the wall, a massive blue-white cliff of ice that fills up half the sky and dwarfs Castle Black beneath it. The wall is the largest structure built by men, according to Benjen, and the most useless thing, according to Tyrion. Older, yeah, Tyrion's great. Older than the Seven Kingdoms, to John, the wall seems to represent the edge of the world. Tyrion interrupts John's uh, look up at the wall by commenting that it makes you wonder about what lies beyond. Since arriving, John has seen little of Tyrion, who has been an honored guest among the high officers. When Tyrion asks John if he is curious about what lies beyond the wall, John replies that there is nothing special inside wishes he would have ridden with his uncle Benjen on arranging. Tyrion calls him Lord Snow by mistake. John objects, but Tyrion asks, asks him if he would prefer to be called the Imp, and reminds John to make his weakness his strength by accepting it. Tyrion is such a good character, like... Oh, yeah. I'm like, just take Lord Snow and walk with it, man. Like, they're gonna yeah. call you it. Deal with it. I, I remember watching an interview with George R. R. Martin once, where he said um, that he wishes he was as smart as Tyrion is. And then he goes, well, I guess I am as smart as Tyrion is because I write his, his words for him. He goes, but <gasps> it, it takes me two or three months to come up with something where it takes Tyrion two seconds. So we all wish we were as smart as Tyrion is. And then Tyrion asks about Ghost and John tells him that he chains the dire wolf in the old stables during training that the rest of the time he stays with John in his sleeping area in Hardin's Tower. Tyrion says he thought those buildings were abandoned, but John explains that since most of the unmanned castle is abandoned, nobody cares where a person sleeps. He continues on to tell Tyrion that he sleeps alone because the others are afraid of ghosts. Tyrion. And here we learn that John is also a loner, avoiding all the other boys. Like, no wonder they think John is just like. Yeah, I'm better than you. I can't even sleep with you. Yeah, yeah. Tyrion declares that the others are wise, then mentions that Benjen Stark is late returning from his ranging. John recalls that his uncle was supposed to be back by his name day. So I guess John and Rob, well, at least John is 15 now. John recalls that his uncle was supposed to be back by his name day, which is now a fortnight past. Tyrion says that he has heard that a great number of rangers have disappeared recently. In the common hall, John gets food and chooses a spot away from the other recruits, and Tyrion sits opposite him. Sir Alistair interrupts John's conversation to tell him that the Lord Commander wants to speak with him about a message concerning his half-brother. Tyrion suspects the worst and gives John his sympathy. John races to the Commander's Keep, where Lord Jorah Mormont gives him a message from Rob at Winterfell. The message explains that Bran has woken up, but is now a paraplegic. John, overjoyed that Bran will live, rushes back to tell Tyrion. I believe he actually picks Tyrion up and spins him around, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. I think he does. Yeah, and in his joy, John also apologizes to Grin and offers to show him how to defend against the move that injured him. Sir Alistair sarcastically remarks that he would have an easier time teaching his wolf to juggle than to train Grin to fight. 
John replies that he will take that wager as he would love to see ghosts juggle. All the, yeah, all the men in the hall, including Grin, begin to laugh. Sir Alistair clenches his fist in anger, and John realizes he has made himself a lifelong enemy. It's because Sir Alistair just doesn't like people, yeah. especially the children. Again, well, everybody hates children in this series. I mean, we don't, Sir Alistair especially hates John because he's Ned Stark's son. And we don't find this out until later books, but Sir Alistair was a Targaryen loyalist. And that's why he went to the wall because he refused to bow to Robert or to bend the knee to Robert. And he chose to take the black instead. What's so interesting to me is how many people hate Ned just from like things that went on during the war. Yeah. Like lots of old grudges. And again, all the kids should know about these things. Well, like Ned sent John to the wall. Like he should have been like, hey, I mean, you're if, probably going to run into some people there who aren't going to like me. So yeah. they're not going to like you. I mean, but if you really think about it, if Ned and John Aaron hadn't come to Robert's side during Robert's Rebellion, he would have been crushed. Like, you know, uh, Ned brought the full power of the North and Robert Aaron brought the Eerie, obviously. And like- Brought all, the veil, basically, yeah. Or yeah, I'm sorry, brought, brought the veil. It like, if, if it had just been Robert on his own, on his own, the Targaryen forces would have crushed him. Like, you know, Tywin Lannister would have, would have joined up with the Targaryens immediately. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And like, yeah, he would have, he would have been crushed. So it really is because of Ned and especially like marrying Catelyn and then John Aaron marrying Liza that they were able to beat the Targaryens. So if you're a Targaryen loyalist, you, you really do hate Ed's, uh, uh, Ned, Ned Stark, you know. But moving right along to chapter 20, Eddard 4. Our POV character is Eddard Stark, and the location is King's Landing. Ned arrives in King's Landing, tired and ready for a meal and a hot bath. Instead, he is immediately informed by the royal steward that there is an urgent meeting of the small council that he must attend. After momentarily losing his temper, Ned decides that it is best not to offend the council on his first day in the capital. Therefore, he tasks his own stu steward to see that his daughters are guided to their rooms and that Arya is not allowed, allowed to go exploring. In borrowed clothes, his are still, in, are still packed, Ned arrives to find four members of the council waiting for him. Littlefinger, the master of coin, Varys, the master of whispers, Renly Baratheon, the master of laws, and Grand Maester Pycelle. And I'll okay. also note here that the difference here is that he wanted to get changed. Yeah. Made sure to get nicer clothes on yeah. before heading to camp. Yeah, Ned in the book is much more lordly than he, than he is on the show. Like he, and it's a big deal to him that he, like, he's like, oh, I'll have to borrow clothes and, you know, like to, to be. He's in... very by the books, which does, right. you know, that is very much his character, even in the show, but yeah. I don't, well, I think, you know, it just makes it easier not having to do these small things. But yeah, in the book, he, like, he needs to look clean and look good. Like he's not going to just show up right, right from the road. Like, I, I think the show depiction of it, of like, even having the steward say to him, oh, do you want to change your clothes before going to the meet? And Ned just takes off his riding gloves. Like it shows this version of Ned is a hardened, uh, a hardened northerner. Like he, he doesn't care about the formalities and all that. I think in the TV show, we get much more warrior Ned versus right. the Lord of Winterfell. Right, yeah. Which Ned is both of those things. He is a battle-hardened warrior but he is also the lord of winterfell mm -hmm. and he's not supposed to be the lord of winterfell and you hear him often kind of say like this isn't supposed to be my job like i'm not doing this very well so i think a lot of his need to be the mm -hmm. lord and look like look the part of the lord is simply because he wasn't expecting to be in that role to begin with yeah you know it's interesting maybe we'll discuss it at the end eh, i guess we could discuss it now if brandon hadn't died and became the Lord of Winterfell. He would have married Catelyn, blah, 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 all that stuff. I wonder what Ned would have ended up doing. Like, he probably would have been hand, for, hand of the king right from the beginning. Like, he would have gone to King's Landing with Robert. 
and been down there and everything. Probably because it would have made more sense for John Aaron to stay in the Erie and stay with the Vale than yeah with his stuff versus Ned not taking like Ned would have been free to do whatever yeah like marry a Shara Dane and have children with her and stuff. I mean, true. Which if uh, if Robert then married Cersei, I guarantee there would have been some cat fighting between Cersei and Ashara. Cersei would have been like, "No, I'm prettier than her." <laughs> you know. You know it's true. I just imagine them sitting there like, your hair looks good today, Ashara. (laughs) Well, doesn't Ashara have purple eyes, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, I think so. Yeah, because she has some Valyrian blood in her as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But all right, let's let's get back into the to the plot. The simpering eunuch Varys immediately expresses sorrow over the troubles on the road and assures Ned that they are all praying for Prince Joffrey's recovery. Ned coldly informs him that the prince grows stronger every day. There's also mention, uh, it's not in my notes here, but Varys, when we see him as a member of the small council, he's covered in makeup, particularly like powder. He has powder all over himself, even on his hands. And like when he shakes Ned's hand, Ned's hand is covered in powder that Varys wears. When he sees Renly, Ned is struck by how much he looks like a younger Robert. Littlefinger immediately quips that Renly is much better dressed, having spent more more on clothes than many ladies of the court. Upon introducing himself to Ned for the first time, Littlefinger mentions that Catelyn had most likely mentioned him before. Ned recalls that Littlefinger also knew his brother Brandon, adding that Brandon mentioned him more often and with some heat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you, you know, Ned's not smart, but he had a nice exchange there with Littlefinger. Littlefinger responds that he would have thought heat did not suit the Starks, who are rumored to be made of ice and to melt south of the neck. Ned replies that he does not plan on melting anytime soon. After a short greeting to Grand Maester Pycelle, Ned asks after the other members of the council, and is told that Stannis Baratheon left for Dragonstone shortly after the king went north, and that both Sir Barristan Selmy and King Robert are still riding through the city. When Ned suggests they wait, Renly explains that Robert finds the details of coin and crops boring and rarely bothers to attend. Then Renly says the king sent him ahead to convene the council to handle an urgent matter, and Littlefinger produces a sealed letter for Ned. I'd also like to say here that this is like the first mention we get of Stannis and we don't really get a lot of mentions of Stannis in the TV show the same way that like Stannis is kind of always coming up of like, but why is he in Dragonstone? Why is Stannis not here? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't really get Stannis on the TV show until season two and going further, but he's a much, even though he's an absent character from this first book, he's a much bigger character in the book and everyone's wondering what's going on with him what he's up to why yeah. he's not there and like we we do get hints in later chapters about exactly why he's not there what he was up to prior before leaving and what he's probably doing what he is doing on dragonstone mm-hmm. like and for anyone well i i guess i should mention dragonstone is east of king's landing it's where when the targaryens first came to West, uh, westeros that they you know landed and it's or, well not landed because that's king's land but um it's the seat of targaryen power yeah, power yeah. is what it is and i think i be, if i remember correctly dragonstone was technically part of valeria like it's east of westeros but it's closer to westeros than it is to uh essos but it was still part of valeria and that's why the targaryens went there there was a targaryen mm-hmm. hundreds of years ago who predicted valeria would be destroyed so the Targaryens picked up and moved to Dragonstone. And then Aegon the Conqueror comes around and says, you know what? Westeros is kind of a mess. I'm going to fix that. Let me and my sister wives just fly some dragons over and boom, one, one kingdom. And I'm its king. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And the reason that it's Stannis's is because Robert gave it to Stannis after they defeated the Targaryens, which it's weird because Stannis took that as an insult. I, I think I... the problem is like he assumed like he is technically the Lord of Storms End is what he should be because well he is the older brother. Yeah, what he wanted Storms End too. 
And if we're going into all the details during Robert's rebellion, Stannis stayed at Storm's End during a siege and held it for a year. He kept like everyone out from getting into it. And he thought he was going to get Storm's End as a reward, but Robert gave him Dragonstone instead. And from Stannis's perspective, it was an insult because Dragonstone is just like this barren land in the middle of the ocean. You can't grow crops. You can't do anything like that. Whereas Storm's End is much nicer. However, uh, Robert thought that it was not an insult. Like he was like, no, like it's the ancestral home of the Targaryens and the crown prince is supposed to have Dragonstone. Like I'm giving it to you, like ma- like being like, oh, here, like have this great honor. It's Dragonstone. And he, and he ended up giving Storm's End to Renly, which ticked off Stannis. So it, it, it's all a complicated mess, but. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the Stannis stuff is people just misunderstand Stannis and yeah. like. Well, I, 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 to go more in, you know, we should do character profiles. We talked a while ago about doing character profiles for uh, uh, Once Upon a Time. I think we should do it for Game of Thrones as well. It's going to be a lot of work, but Stannis is a very fascinating character, in my opinion. And I believe the last time he ever laughed was before he saw his parents die. Like he literally watched his parents die at sea and never got old. Never laughed again. Yeah, he never recovered from it. But let's dive back into the plot. The King's Letter contains an order that a tourney be held in honor of Ned's appointment as Hand of the King. Ned is incredulous and not particularly happy with this extravagance being held in his name. The prizes alone total 90,000 gold dragons, and the costs are sure to run high as well. When Ned questions whether the treasury will bear the expense, Littlefinger reveals that the crown is already over 6 million gold pieces in debt, half of it to the Lannisters. Ned is shocked. The Targaryens left a treasury overflowing with gold. He cannot believe that John Aaron allowed Robert to beggar the realm, but the council explains that while Lord Aaron was a prudent man, Robert did not always listen. Ned insists that this tourney is something that the realm cannot afford and declares that he will consider it later, then leaves abruptly. As Ned proceeds towards the hand of the tower, reflecting on the miseries of the last fortnight of the journey south, he is intercepted by Littlefinger, who tells him he is going the wrong way. After a long journey through the Red Keep, Ned eventually realizes that Littlefinger is not leading him towards the tower. Littlefinger explains that he is leading Ned towards his wife, but Ned does not believe him. Eventually, Littlefinger brings him to the foot of a, of a bluff outside the castle, where they mount onto waiting horses and ride into the city. I've didn't put this in my notes, but um, they also have to climb down this mountain uh, or like a peak for a little while. And in, in the chapter, Ned mentions like how quickly Littlefinger can do it. And like, it's impressive how fast he is. But moving right along, Littlefinger leads Ned to a brothel that he owns and tells him his wife is waiting inside. Ned is furious at being taken all this way to a brothel and holds a knife to Littlefinger's throat claiming his brother was too kind. He is, yeah. I see why he takes it as an insult. He doesn't believe Littlefinger. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, first he leads him on this ridiculous path through the, through the Red Keep and everything. And we have to keep in mind how much larger all the castles are in the books than they are on the yeah. show. So he goes through this ridiculous journey and he's tired from both riding and going through this. And then Littlefinger's like, oh yeah, your wife is in this brothel right here. And Ned gets understandably very ticked off. But Ned is interrupted by a man he eventually recognizes as Sir Roderick Cassell, disarming his suspicions. Littlefinger leads Ned upstairs to meet with Catelyn, explaining that a brothel is such a good hiding place because it is so unlikely. After embracing and exchanging news with Catelyn, Ned sees the scars on her hand and she places the Valerian steel dagger used against Bran in his hands. However, Ned cannot understand why Tyrion Lannister would have attempted to murder Bran, and neither can we. Littlefinger states that the reason is obvious, that Tyrion would have never acted alone. Ned tries to assure himself that Robert could not have been involved in this, but he remembers all the horrid things the king has either supported or ignored. Queen Cersei, on the other hand, 
Ned has no trouble believing to be responsible. Littlefinger reminds him that to accuse either is treason, but that if they can find proof of Cersei's involvement, it is possible the king will listen. Ned I hate that line because it so implies that, like, yeah, the king will just get rid of Cersei because he just doesn't want her. Yeah. Well, he kind of doesn't, but he, he owes, you know, uh, $3 million to her father already. It's, uh, he's, you know, he's stuck in this relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Ned feels that he should take his case and the dagger directly to the king, but Littlefinger reminds him that there is no solid proof that Tyrion was involved. Then Catelyn explains that she has told Littlefinger about their suspicions concerning John Aaron's death and that Littlefinger has promised to help them learn the truth. When Ned asks how much Varys knows about all of this, he is told that Varys has not been told, but Catelyn warns that the man knows things no normal man has any way of knowing. Ned then asks Littlefinger to give them time alone. Littlefinger asks if they want a bedchamber, but Ned tells him that will not be necessary. He just needs a little time. Catelyn goes to Littlefinger and tells him that she appreciates his efforts and has found a brother that she had thought was lost. Ned is not so confident that Littlefinger can be trusted, but says nothing. After Littlefinger leaves, Ned gives Catelyn instructions for his bannermen to fortify Moat Kaelin and to keep a watch over Theon Greyjoy in case his father's fleet is needed. He hopes it will not come to war and that Robert will believe him when he finds out what happened. What's interesting here is how much Littlefinger's playing them. Like, don't go to Robert yet. Right. Because he knows that, like, he'll be found out more so out of everything. Mm-hmm. You're right. And also, um, Ned's thoughts here, or instructions that he gives Catelyn to fortify Moat Kaelin and to keep Theon Greyjoy close. She doesn't do either of those things. No, and, she doesn't. And, yeah, and it costs the Starks like dearly in the war that they eventually do end up fighting. I didn't even think about it that she doesn't do either of those things because she never gets back to Winterfell to do those things. Right. Uh, but even like the places that she does make it to, she could at least send a raven or something or censor i suppose i think the problem is like by the time she's like far enough north north to like consider doing anything about it like now she's stuck with dealing with the Tyrion situation yeah you're right well we'll discuss it when it arises but i just think it's funny that ned's like oh i hope war doesn't come but if it does have these things done first in case it does and then she doesn't she doesn't do either of those things but moving right along we get to chapter 21 Tyrion 3. Our point of view character is Tyrion Lannister, and the location is Castle Black. Tyrion is dining with the high officers of the Night's Watch on his last night at Castle Black. Lord Commander Mormont proclaims Tyrion a cunning man and asks him if he must leave so soon, saying that the Wall needs men like him. Tyrion brushes off the suggestion with an offer to scour the Seven Kingdoms for dwarves. An offended Alistair Thorne claims that Tyrion mocks the Watch, but Tyrion counters that he is only mocking Sir Alistair. Thorne demands that Tyrion make his japes with steel in hand. Tyrion replies that he already has steel in his hand, a fork, which he brandishes against Thorne in a mock attack. Like, I'm just picturing it in my head as I'm reading it, and yeah, it, it's pretty funny. A roar of laughter arises from the other officers, and Sir Alistair leaves in disgust. After claiming Sir Alistair's meal as the spoils of victory, Tyrion comments that a man like Sir Alistair should be mucking out the stables, not drilling the recruits. Mormon takes the opportunity to complain about the quality of his men. Sir Alistair is one of the few living knights to have taken the black. I mean, it makes sense, but also Tyrion does have a point, like... yeah. Well, this if, man is too rough with everybody to be, te- be training. Well, it's interesting too because the wall is ba- is based off of uh, Hadrian's Wall in Scotland. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what George R. R. Martin because he he went to visit it and saw this massive structure that the Romans built and w- was like, oh, you know, which I think it's only like ten. I say only, but I think it's only like ten feet tall in real life. But 
it's because the Romans were conquering everything. They marched through Britain and were conquering everything. And they got to Scotland and said, oh my God, these people are crazy. Just put up a big wall and keep them on the other side of it. And it's just, it's just interesting that like no one in this, like no one takes the Night's Watch seriously anymore in this world. And it's like, why would they build this gigantic ice wall if there wasn't a serious threat on the other side of it? Right? Like, what is the purpose? Like, why build anything like this unless there was purpose? Oh, well, they're dead on the other side. Okay. Have you been to the other side? Do you know what's on the other side? Yeah. Meanwhile, all you have here is like wildlings trying to come over in mass now because they're terrified and they're all like, oh no, we've seen some, we've seen some, man. (laughs) And that's something too that I want to find out more about. Like, why did people choose to stay on that side of the wall when the wall went up like what what was because they say a lot about like oh we wanted to be the free people and like not be like ruled by anyone but like yeah no there had to be other reasons why they decided to stay over there like that's a because i don't feel like that's a good enough reason given what we know is also on that side of the wall and and i think too about how um the Night's Watch has changed over the thousands of years because we get stories about the Night's Watch before the Night King and, mm-hmm. uh, or the Night's King. I, the, sorry, the show confused me. Um, but the Night's King, who was the 13th Lord Commander and took an other for a wife and fathered like children with her and stuff like that. That's where people theorize the vow about not taking wives and not having children come from because the 13th Lord Commander was such an awful person. It took the combined forces of the wildlings beyond the wall and the King of the North at that time to defeat him. But I think maybe back in the day, the free folk or the wildlings were supposed to be part of the Night's Watch. Like they were like the rangers or something. They had families and stuff and lived on that side of the wall. And throughout the thousands of years of history, it just devolved into two separate types of people. I don't know. Maybe they're not even, maybe it's not even that they were part of it, but they were the families of the rangers and the families of the people that ran the wall. Mm -hmm. And then those families had more families and those families had more families. And suddenly there's a lot of people. Exactly. That don't really answer to anyone because they don't answer to the realm because Mm -hmm. they're not on that side of the wall. Right. And now you got people coming up with their own ideas hundreds of years later, like we value our freedom and that's what it becomes. So you're the free people. Right. Because the wildlings, they eat, they fight and they make little wildlings. So eventually they're going to come up with their own stories and backgrounds and everything. I I just want to find out more about the origins of the free folk, the wildlings, whatever you want to call them, why they decided to be on that side of the wall when the wall went up. I think, I think it would be interesting. Yeah. But Sir Jeremy Riker goes on to explain that both he and Thorne fought for King Ares II Targaryen during the sack of King's Landing and were forced to take the black or be executed by Tyrion's father, Lord Tywin Lannister. So right there, we get an example of why Alistair Thorne hates the Starks yeah. and hate, hates the Lannisters. Tyrion's only comment is that his father is indeed very fond of heads on spikes. Tyrion asks for more wine, and Bowen Marsh comments that he has a great thirst for a small man. Maester Aemon states that Tyrion is a giant among them at the edge of the world. Tyrion, speechless at being called a giant, calls the maester kind, which leaves the maester equally amused. When they retire to the fire, Mormont informs Tyrion that he will receive an escort as far as Winterfell. Tyrion soon realizes that the Lord Commander is working his way up to asking a favor, and so he cuts right to it by asking if there is any way he can repay the Watch's kindness. Mormont beseeches Tyrion to speak to King Robert about the condition of the Night's Watch and its need for men. Mormont goes on to elaborate of the high rate of disappearances among the raging parties, including Sir Waymar Royce and Benjen Stark. The Watch's strength is now under a thousand men leaving only three men to guard each mile of the wall. Then Mormont laments that he is old and there is no one qualified to take over command because the watch has become an army of sullen boys and old men. He has maybe 20 men that can read and fewer who can think or lead. 
Tyrion promises that he will tell the king, his father, and his brother, but he knows that it will do no good. Mormont then asks Tyrion how many winters he has seen. Tyrion replies with nine. Mormont adds that they have all been short. The long summer is ending, and portents say a long winter is coming. Tyrion suggests the fabled endless summer has come, and Mormont insists the days are already growing shorter. Mormont then confides to Tyrion that the wildlings are massing and moving south, running scared from something worse than just the cold. Tyrion, bored by Mormont's dark words, reiterates he promises and leaves. Outside, it is bitter cold. As he walks the castle ground, Tyrion is taken by a whim to climb the wall one last time. His legs are cramping too much to climb the stairs, so Tyrion takes the winch cage up. At the top, he meets Jon Snow with Ghost. As they walk, Tyrion asks how the recruits are doing under Jon's instructions. Jon tells him that they are getting better. Tyrion offers to carry any messages that Jon might have south to Winterfell and is rewarded with a torrent of requests. Most of all, Jon wants Tyrion to help his crippled brother Bran. At first, Tyrion denies that he has anything to offer Bran, but Jon insists that words will be enough. When Tyrion agrees, Jon thanks him from the heart and calls him friend. Tyrion, deeply moved by the gesture, quips that while many of his kin are bastards, Jon is the first that he could call a friend, and they shake hands. Jon they... making friends with him while the other Starks are like, screw Tyrion. Yeah. He tried to hurt Bran. <laughs> they both look out over the haunted forest north of the wall. As they watch, John says that he has been watching for his uncle Benjen. Tyrion assures John that Benjen will return one day. When John declares that if his uncle does not come back, he and Ghost will go north to find him. Tyrion wonders who will go out searching for John and shivers at the thought. You know, I just want to say something because I was thinking about it. Mm. Like, they have trouble getting all the getting any men to come to the wall, right? And yet you have maesters, you have the king's guard, you have other things that people devote their life to. And basically like that's it, they devote their life to it. And those things like people want to do, like people kind of want to go be. What are they saying about the the Night's Watch that like nobody wants to go there? Like it's not seen as something that's like good. Like, oh, if I go that, like that is a noble cause for me to go do. Right. Well. We, the only characters that we really see coming from highborn families are people like Waymore Royce, who I forget if he's the second or third or fourth son of the Royce mm-hmm. family, but he was basically just an extra son. There was nothing really for him to do. So he joined the Night's Watch. And John, who's a bastard, so he joined the Night's Watch because he's not going to inherit anything. No one's going to want to yeah. marry him for any political reasons, blah, blah, blah. And then you have, like, the Night's Watch is one of the things that you can do instead of, like, if you're a criminal, instead of paying a different penalty, you can join mm-hmm. the Night's Watch instead. And it, it's cold. <laughs> like, it's an ice wall. And it's an ice wall all year long, regardless of if it's summer or winter. That's how far north it is that it's that cold. I mean, if, if like, you... Like, can... I get it. But this also kind of goes back to that, like, our talk when we were talking about the fact that, like, the Stark children are ill-prepared. Like, are other children, like, in the South, like, no, that's just where we send the criminals, honey. You don't want to go there. And, like, clearly that's not how the Stark children look at it. The Stark yeah. children are like, oh, no, deserters of the wall are terrible people. We must behead them. <laughs> like, No, I, I think that's exactly what it's like. I, I think you're 100% right with that comment. I, I think uh, if you're born in the... You know, I can maybe understand if you're not a noble like maybe joining them because otherwise like you know how are you going to get food blah 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 at least the night's watch has a purpose for you like you have some sort of purpose Purpose, food sleeping like yeah shelter yeah but i think for most people they would be like no the guy sleeping next to me murdered three people how do i know he's not going to murder me in my sleep um there are no women like yeah there's molestown and everything but you're actually not supposed to go there so they'd be like no there's no women like I, I, I can understand how it got to the condition that it's in. You know, we know as readers that it should be in a much better position than it's in, but 
I can, and you know, there's wildling raids. Like you have to fight the wildlings if they show up. You have to fight these wilds people. So I don't know. I I, I kind of get it. Yeah, but fighting is a glorious activity in these kind of worlds. So yeah, but you could still die. There's still people. True, but like <laughs> we obviously the sea boys all eager to go fight all the time in this world. So like yeah, fair enough. I I don't know. Um, Moving on, though, I guess. Yeah, all right. Let's get to chapter 22, Aria 2. Our point of view character is Aria Stark, and the location is King's Landing. When her father enters the small hall after dinner has already begun, Aria can tell that he has been fighting with the council again. Jory Cassell asks about the tourney everyone is talking about, and Eddard asks if anyone is talking about the hand's displeasure with the whole idea. Sansa is tremendously excited by the prospect of a tourney and begs to be allowed to attend. When Septa Mordain mentions his family will be expected to attend, Eddard agrees to assure that seats are provided for both Sansa and Arya. Knowing that Prince Joffrey will be there, Arya insists that she does not want to attend a stupid tourney. When Sansa taunts Arya would not be wanted anyway, Eddard loses his temper and threatens to change his mind. Quickly regaining his composure, Eddard excuses himself. Once he is gone, his, guard, his guardsmen start talking excitedly about the tourney. No one talks to Arya, but she likes it that way. Back in Winterfell, she had enjoyed listening to men talk. But now the sounds irritate her because she blames them all, even her father, for doing nothing to save Lady and Micah. After looking disgustedly at her cold food and the people around her, Arya pushes away from the table. When Septa Mordain insists that Arya hasn't eaten, she dashes away. She runs to her chamber and locks it herself. She digs to the bottom of her chest where her sword needle is hidden. Arya thinks that if she could climb like her brother Bran, she could steal some food and run away, and that if Jon Snow was there, she would not feel so lonely. A soft knock on her door proves to be her father, who says they need to talk and asks politely to come in. From the way he talks, Arya is ashamed to realize he is more sad than angry. When she lets him in, her father immediately notices the sword and asks whose it is. Arya explains that it is hers, and her father asks to see it. He notices Micken's mark on the blade and remarks that if his nine-year-old daughter can be armed from his own forge without his knowledge, how could he be expected to rule the Seven Kingdoms? Good question, Ned. <laughs> yeah. Eddard asks who gave her the sword, but Arya stays silent, not wanting to betray John. Her father accepts this, but tells Arya that a sword is not a toy. When he asks what she thinks Septa Mordain would say about her playing with a sword, Arya insists that she is not playing. Eddard states that he should break the sword over his knee. Arya responds that needle won't break. The sword, having a name, amuses her father, who claims that Arya reminds him of, it, of his sister, Liana, who might have carried a sword if their father had allowed it. Arya is surprised when Eddard says that she looks like her aunt, who was always described as beautiful, something never said of Arya. All right, I have a note here, mm -hmm. mostly because, you know, Arya looks like... Liana, and then we know that John and Arya apparently look like this is all I'm giving you, Liana Rhaegar people. Okay, this is all I'm giving you right, right. now. Yeah. So if we're taking that John and Arya also look fairly alike, so are we alluding to the fact that John does look kind of like Liana too? Then. Yeah. Like that's all I'm giving you, Liana and Rhaegar people. That's all I'm giving you here. But. <laughs> yeah. No. Like, and the thing is too is that Eddard obviously knew Liana when she was a child and yeah. knew what she would grow up to look like later in life or later in her life, I guess I should say. So if he recognizes Arya looking like her now, even, you know, I've known uh, people in real life, not just girls, but boys too, who, when they were young, didn't look cute. Like they were not, not ugly, but they just didn't look cute. And then they became beautiful people when they got older. Like, you know, it, people can change how they look over the years and it easily happens you're right. yeah the ugly yeah, duckling like i just like 
You know, it's definitely something that struck me because they do make a mark that like John and Arya look alike, and that was, you know, yeah. If, I, if I, we're going with the Rhaegar and Lyanna thing, like this is probably one of those few things where I'm like, uh huh, right. Like this is this is probably one of the few things that I would like go. Yes, this obviously alludes to this. This is the thing that people cling to when they're when they argue for Rhaegar and Lyanna being John. Like that Arya looks like Lyanna and Arya and John look similar. But the thing is, is that they both look like their father and all the other ch- children look like Lady Stark. Like yeah. and it's stressed how much John looks like Ned. Like you can see the North in him and everything. I I don't know. You could argue about how that means Ned has more recessive genes than Catelyn does. I've watched videos about people explaining how where wherewood trees are in the castles affect what the children look like when they're born and stuff like like there's a lot of there's a lot of factors going on here and a lot of theories and conspiracies about different things but the fact of the matter is John's age doesn't add up for being the child of Rhaegar and Lyanna like it just doesn't the timeline doesn't work with John being the child of Rhaegar and Lyanna he wouldn't be 15. He would only be roughly 13 or maybe about to be 14 to be the child of Rhaegar and Lyanna. It just, in the timeline of events, the way that they happened, it does. The only way that it could work is if at the, the, the tourney of Hall, Rhaegar impregnated Lyanna there. Like, that's literally the only way that it could work that John is and their child. And the pregnancy was just hidden and nobody knew about it. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it, it just doesn't work in the timeline otherwise. Uh, sorry, R plus L equals J fans. You're wrong. <laughs> like, uh, you got you got to have the show and look at how great that was. What did it matter that John was a Targaryen on the show? Like, it, it really didn't. It, it didn't. Like, everything that John does is to deny him. Like, he doesn't want to be the king of the North, even though they make him the king of the North. He doesn't want to be the king of the Seven Kingdoms, even though some people try to thrust that on him. Like, what was the purpose of him being a Targaryen? So he could ride a dragon in a couple episodes? Like, what did that really do? Like, nothing. All right. Let me calm down. <laughs> Let me get back into this. Okay. So, Eddard asks Arya if she knows anything about how to use a sword, and she replies with the advice John gave her to stick him with the pointy end. She then tells how she was trying to learn and sadly adds that she asked Micah to practice with her. In grief, she starts to sob against her father's chest. He tells her that Micah's death was not her fault. Arya sobs that she hates all of them. The queen, the hound, Joffrey, and the king. She then adds that Joffrey lied and that she also hates Sansa. Eddard says that everyone lies and he does not believe that Nymeria ran off. Arya then exclaims that Jory promised not to tell. Eddard informs her that Jory did not tell, but that he had it figured out, because even a blind man could tell that the wolf would not have left her willingly. Arya then explains how she and Jory had to throw rocks to drive the wolf away. Then she asks her father if she did the right thing, and Eddard assures her that she did. Eddard then tells Arya that winter is coming. He explains to her how wolves stick together and that in wintertime, the lone wolf dies. Now there are enemies threatening the Starks, so they must stick together like a pack of wolves, and it is time for her to start growing up. He hands Arya back her sword, saying she can keep it. He only asks that she not stick her sister with it. Within three... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Go ahead. Uh, I would also be like, yeah, "Yeah, maybe I'll uh, stick Sansa with this. (laughs) Yeah. Three days later, Arya is sent to the uh, small hall by the steward. She is met by Cyril Pharrell, a former first sword of Bravos. He tells her that he is her dancing master and throws a wooden sword, which she cannot catch. Unperturbed, Cyril tells Arya that the next day she, she will be there midday and catch the blade. She picks up the practice sword as instructed and finds it very heavy. When she complains about the weight, Sirio explains that it is too heavy to make her strong. He then fixes her grip, telling her not to squeeze too tight. 
When Arya says that she might drop it, Sirio tells her that the sword must become a part of her arm and that she cannot drop a part of her arm. When Sirio calls her a boy for the third time, Arya objects. He insists that it does not matter. A sword has no gender. He then explains that what he will be teaching her is not the hacking and hammering iron dance of Westeros, but the swift and sudden water dance of Bravos. He then tells her to try and strike him, and she tries unsuccessfully for hours until every muscle is sore. The next day, the real work begins. The thing that I do like about this scene in the show is that we see Ned over, like, watching over this instructions yeah. that Sirio is giving her, and we hear the sounds of battle in the background, like Ned yeah. hearing. Like, Ned is a character that has PTSD, and it's never really addressed in the show aside from that, but he does, like, suffer from having gone to war at such a young age and gone through the things that he went through. Which is unsurprising. Yeah, agreed. Um, I mean, war is going to cause PTSD, to be honest, in anyone at any age, so. Right. Yeah, especially seeing the things that Ned saw while he was at war. And we don't even know all the full details. But I mean, even when the war ends, his sister dies in front of him. So he's been through a lot. Is there anything else you'd like to say about these book chapters? Or should we? Uh, uh... I will say about like the Arya stuff here. uh, You know, this kind of start of like, kind of the work that goes into kind of her own personal disassociation with herself, almost Mm -hmm. like. It's really starting here with the, you're a sword, you're a boy, like. And really with Arya, with later books, I'll say not later chapters, because it's later books. Um, So spoilers for anyone who doesn't want to listen. The only thing that keeps her stark identity for her is the wolf dreams. Like she, whenever she goes, yeah, whenever she goes to sleep, she inhabits Nymeria's body and has dreams about what Nymeria's do. Well, actually, she does it. It's not even Nymeria doing it. It's her in Nymeria's body doing things. Aside from that, she really starts to disassociate her identity of who she is and everything. They- yeah, and I, you know, that's kind of just a factor in how she's being trained. Like, even right here, she's mm-hmm. slowly being kind of indoctrinated into this weird disassociative state of a being. Right. And the very few chapters of Winds of Winter that George has made public, Arya is much different. She's a much different character in those in that book than she is here and what she was on the show. I recently sent you an article about um, the how George R. R. Martin wanted the show yeah. to be very different. He wanted it to be 10 seasons. And he was very disappointed at the storyline that what they did with the storyline, because he said it was very different than what he had planned out. So I think we're going to get to see if we ever get to see the next book, we're going to see very different things than what the show gave us. And I would imagine Arya is one of those characters where we'll especially see very different things. Oh, yeah, because I think they kind of washed over a lot of her Mm. character towards the end. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the one chapter that I'm thinking of specifically in Winds of Winter that he's made public is called Mercy. And mm-hmm. it, Arya is on a mission for the um, Faceless Men. Mm-hmm. And she became this I've read ter- that one. I yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's, it's disturbing because of Arya's extremely young age. But yes. she's very different than anything that she did on the TV show. And I think Arya's character is going to go in a very different direction than anything the tv show did with her i think a lot of the characters are going to go in a fairly different direction yeah yeah besides um what happened with sansa marrying um ramsey that i don't think will happen at all in the books that's going to be very very different but i could see sansa going in a similar direction overall like i could see her becoming the heir of Winterfell and maybe even if this if the seven kingdoms break up or something like her becoming the queen of the north I could like Sansa has a very different arc I think where she's going to get where she's going to get to might end up the same but I think she's going to have a very different journey to get there but yeah and 
we'll discuss John and Daenerys and the rest of them another time, I guess. Um, yes. But so uh, that that's all for this episode, or oh, go ahead. No, I, I well, it's not really episode related to this. I, I just wanted to mention because we're doing fantasy related thing. Uh, you know, I've been watching The Wheel of Time. Jason is not watching it, but that's fine. Uh, you know, if you want to hear anything and hear my thoughts on it, I am more than willing to do one of the Ashley episodes and ramble a bit for y'all. But uh, I don't know yeah. if I want to. I'm not enjoying it in case any of you want to know. But uh, if you want to hear why I'm not enjoying it, let us know and I'll give a ranty rant. Yeah. I think also um, I might check it out. I've never read the books, so it would be interesting if I did check it out because this would be my exposure to it. And maybe I would have a different opinion from you. I don't know. Like uh, I said, I've only read the first book and mm. I didn't li- like, I don't really like the book either. So I don't think that helps, but I also think what they've done with the characters in the book versus the show is a little different and I'm not sure I'm a fan of it, but mm. you know, we can get into that if we do an episode. Yeah, maybe um, too, since we're throwing things out there sort of fantasy related. If you'd like to hear us do an episode about Dune, I recently watched the movie. You watched the movie, I believe. I did not. Uh, but oh, I you did not. Go okay. watch it. Okay, but you've read the books. I listened to the audio book. Yeah, I listened to the audio book, and I also watched the uh, '84 version of the movie, which I enjoyed more than the new one. Uh, not that the new one wasn't good; it was very well made. But uh, in my opinion, it took itself very super seriously. <laughs> which just from listening to the audiobook and from watching the 84 movie I feel like Dune has to be a little bit silly like it's it's a little bit silly in its concept um it's a little bit campy I admit like yeah yeah and I never read any of the other books but I you know have heard people discuss and what and read wikis about where the series goes and I go I think well it gets very serious uh, very silly um so and nothing against Frank Herbert or his son, Brian, or anything, you know, when you're sort of creating a genre like space fantasy, like if you're the first one to do it or the first one to make a big success out of it, you're laying the groundwork. We, uh, I'm poorly expressing myself, but without the silliness of Dune, we wouldn't end up getting something serious like A Song of Ice and Fire slash yeah. game game of thrones you know you have to have things like, like obviously there was tolkien then there was herbert and then there was martin and without that path we wouldn't have gotten what we got with a song of ice and fire slash game of thrones but yeah let us know um ashley's interested in doing an episode on the wheel of time maybe we'll do an episode on dune as well so without anything else i think i'll go into the outro all right sounds good this has been the Once Again Podcast. Any questions, comments, or critiques can be addressed to our email at onceagainpod at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media accounts, Once Again Pod, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, we have several tiers available on patreon.com slash onceagainpod. As always, a like, follow, or share would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. And remember, we will entertain you. We will always entertain you. Thank you.